Ant, Muffy and the Funky Turtle. And I've also said in brackets here, see Mark Blaster McKay for a picture of Ant with bamboo wrap sunglasses. So Blaster McKay, or Mark Stope, is a mate of mine who I met while travelling. And uh, he's a really talented artist and he's done some great sketches in my journal. We had some good trips together. And this is a, just a shout out since I've just found it in my book in brackets. So hope you're going well, Mark. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Okay, we be rolling and rowing and sailing. Down in the galley, the radio came to life. Imagica, Imagica, this is the funky turtle. Imagica, Imagica. The funky turtle is just a shape on the horizon, but eventually the lines of the cat sharpen up and we start to see Ant and Muffy dodging under sails and moving around the deck. The funky turtle has a net at the stern between the two hulls, stacked high with green coconuts. The sails are dark brown looking like old canvas. From a distance, the turtle could be mistaken for an Indonesian outrigger. Through Dave's radio, we can hear Ant on the radio to the Coast Guard who has just buzzed us in his plane. So the Coast Guard, he's like, he'd come nearly every day and he had this habit of um, just radioing into us as he flew over. Because people on the ground, yachties in particular, they're a handy pair of eyes at water level on the lookout for drugs or people smugglers. Funky Turtle, good morning. Coast Guard here. Just wondering if you've seen anything suspicious or anything to report. Well, mate, it was probably nothing, but I saw that red and white yacht Magica pulling a bag out of the water. What? When was this? Oh, well, this morning. Yeah, right, okay. Um, and you could... <laughs> You could sense the the thoughts ticking through on this Coast Guard's um, brain and then all of a sudden he goes, oh, yeah, right, uh, yeah, very funny. If you do see anything out of the ordinary, can you please let us know? Fucking <laughs> Ant is wild. When Ant and Muffy are, w are within a stone's throw of a magica, they realise they are pretty much naked. Ant fumbles with his sarong while steering the tiller with his foot. Muffy makes a lame attempt to cover herself up. You bastard, Ant, Dave calls over the water. Poor bloke believed you for a minute. Sorry, Dave, I can't resist. The coast guards have been hassling me since I set off. I think the funky turtle is a little bit too organic. Ant told a story about um, him and him and Muffy out, out at sea because... They kind of adopted this naturalist lifestyle. They weren't going out with each other, but um, I think Muffy had a shine for him. But they just got into this sort of uh, back-to-nature vibe, and they'd be just sailing just a few feet off the water, the ocean splashing up at them, coconuts on the back, and they're wandering around the deck butt-naked. They told us a story that a few days ago, he says, uh, Muffy and me are up on deck, sailing in the natural way, miles away from anywhere, when this huge megaphone starts up, scaring the shit out of us. Looks like a couple of candidates for skin cancer. And they turn around and this huge patrol boat was parked right up alongside. <laughs> Must have come up from downwind. And all the crew were leaning over the rail, looking down at them, laughing their heads off. And Ant and Muffy are trying to cover themselves up. I liked Ant straight away. He was a classic character, not easily forgotten. Me and Bri, we just, we thought he was great. If his boat looked like an Indonesian fishing boat, then he was the Indonesian fisherman. Deeply tanned, wrapped in a brightly coloured sarong, beaten up straw hat, and sunglasses with homemade bamboo wraps on the sides to keep the sun out. Ant couldn't sail at all when he bought his cat. 
it just set off anti-clockwise around Australia, learning along the way. This was obviously dangerous, but this was Ant. He had done a similar thing with a hang glider. He convinced the Dutch guy who was selling it that he had 50 hours flying time, when in fact it was more like five. They'd stood at the top of this cliff that overlooked a beach somewhere in Queensland. He said he was absolutely shitting himself, but he talked himself into it. He ran and jumped off the edge and immediately went out of control. He managed to pull him back round though and landed snugly on the beach. I don't know the truth on that one. I, yeah, that's... Um, I can't validate that. Ant had met Dave in Darwin. They got on well working together, helping each other out. Dave knew boats inside out and Ant had learnt a lot from him. Through a mutual friend, Muffy had lined herself up with a ride on the Funky Turtle. Muffy was maybe 36, a little fiery at times. She had raven hair and so many freckles it almost formed into one. She loved the sun and getting back to nature at any opportunity, regardless of the circumstance. Sneaking up behind you or doing backstroke in a billabong, there was no escape. She was almost constantly naked. Monica and the Pooh Doctors Believe it or not, here in one of the most isolated places on earth, Ant has a job interview. Ant had met a nurse called Monica in Darwin who worked at Columbaroo, an old Catholic mission dedicated to helping the local indigenous. Monica has lined Ant up for an interview with the principal of the community school for the position of gym instructor. And Ant was such a physical dude. He was like, I think he had 0. 0.000 body fat on him. Dude is just ripped, real athletic kind of guy. We sail into Honeymoon Bay closest mooring point to the mission and Dave takes out his steamed up old binoculars focusing on a group of people on the shoreline their awkward luminous white bodies bobbing up and down in the water and one not so white and not so awkward figure is waving it was Monica we were gobsmacked actually that people were swimming in the ocean because we ain't seen it as we approach this the strangest looking tree we'd ever set eyes on stands out from the scrub. It was a boab, found only between northwest Australia and the coast of Africa. This boab tree has a huge potbelly trunk that's full of fresh water and short spindly branches that look more like roots. The root-like branches hold edible fruits. The aborigines say it was planted upside down <laughs> and it looks like that. It's one of those trees that you want to climb. Rub your hands over its smooth bark. It's the beautiful barrel tree. There was um, one of these trees in Derby they actually used as a prison, apparently. They hollowed it out and put some bars on the front. That was a local lockup. The ones in Africa, though, I think when the country when the world's the plates split and that sailed off toward Africa and Australia went the other way um, but the boab trees in Africa are completely different they're taller they're still the same concept of hollow water trees but they're heaps taller funny how the environment's shaped them differently Monica is with, we found out later, a group of doctors who specialize in viruses and parasites. They have flown out from all over the globe to come and examine Aboriginal stools, checking for hookworm. Hookworm is it's like a real terrible parasite. It works its way into your small intestine via the soles of your feet. And if you get a severe infection of it, can lead to acute anemia as the parasites take in all your nutrients. I think there must have been an outbreak within the community because they were at greater risk of infection because many people just kept it natural and didn't wear footwear. 
As Monica is filling us in on the details, the doctors make their way over. Look out, here come the poo doctors, Monica said under her breath. I wish she hadn't said that. The docs, subconsciously looking at our feet and approving that the fact we were, this time, all wearing some kind of footwear. It was a serious issue, for sure, but the thought of the word poo and not being able to laugh, it's like welling up inside us. So Brian and me, we paid the Boab tree a bit more attention. Monica drove us to the community in a land cruiser along the narrow track. We're hemmed in by giant cane grass. Bushfires are burning along the Columbaroo dirt runway. And above that, hawks hover almost on the tip of the flames, feeding on the evacuees. Along the main track of Columbaroo, coconut palms have been planted. An ant stands at the foot of one of them, looking up into the canopy. Ant had been taught by um, a dude in Darwin called Coconut Tom to climb them. Coconut Tom shinned up these trees for a living, hacking down the heavy nuts from people's gardens that feared they might take one on the head. Ant takes a deep breath, puts one hand on the back of the trunk and leans back to distribute more weight through his feet, places a foot and starts to walk slowly up the tree. The grooves giving him grip. Ants over halfway up, his biceps, back and shoulders taking the strain. A palm leaf has died and limped down onto the trunk. He reached up with one hand, one sharp yank, it's freed and it sails down to the ground 20 feet below. The newer grooves near, near the top have more grip. Ant scrambles a remaining length of trunk toward the canopy. At the canopy, he selects a green, strong-looking front to pull himself up. This action brings down dust and the dirt that is collected here. Ants mill around, crawling all over him. Ant sways around in the crow's nest. A relief to a tired body. Dirt stuck to the sweat he'd worked up, and red welts were showing where he'd scratched against the sharp palm leaves. He recovers from his climb, leans over and twists around the stalk of a coconut until it snaps and a sweet young coconut falls down onto the track. <laughs> There's a fly bug in me. Going to do a brine in a minute. Fucking get back out of my fucking flies! <laughs> it's only one there. Later that day, Ant was almost unrecognisable in his attempt to look employable the long sleeves of his dress shirt covering the climbing grazers. He'd even wet down the thick curly shag of hair that grew every which way from his scalp. He looked uncomfortable, looked like a kid whose mum forced him to dress up for some function. The school principal looked out up and down. Anthony, sit down. Monica tells me you've sailed here on your catamaran, the funky terrapin or something? Nah, the funky turtle, mate, Ant corrected him, cringing at his first words exchanged with the principal. Why do you want to work here in the Kimberley, Anthony? Well, it's a great sport, fishing, sailing, living an alternative lifestyle, away from, you know, the cities and stuff. Anthony, um, I don't know if you're aware, but the job here is serious, that kind of person we're looking for. We want someone who will take this job seriously. We've had problems in the past with people turning feral. Smoking marijuana, swinging in the coconut palms. This is a professional position for a professional person. Oh shit, I hope he didn't see me climbing that coconut tree, Anthony. <laughs> he pretty much described Anthony down with tea. It was about this point in the conversation that sailing away on the funky turtle is very appealing to Ant. It seems crazy to him that in this wild place, one of the most wild places in the world, he should feel the pressures of Western conformity. He stopped trying so hard to impress the principal. He was offered the job, but he just didn't take it. Well done, Ant. I still want to mix with the Aboriginal people, learn something about their culture, but 
I don't want to wander around the place staring at folks. So I had to compromise and listen to Monica's stories of the goings-on in the community. The differences in Western and Aboriginal attitudes and, and the misinterpretations. Yeah, in, in Asia I felt like I could mix with the locals so easily. You know, me and Bri just kip down at the shacks, eat fish over a fire. But the gap between these two races was huge and I was just another white fella. On the way back through the cane to a magica, a feral bullock steps out onto the track forcing us to slow up. He takes his time. He's ignoring us, but the whites of his eyes betray his bravery before he disappears back into the bush. The English has pushed cattle into the Kimberley. The cattle ate the kangaroos' food and fouled the water holes with their, you know, they've got real heavy hooves, causing the roos to move on because the water was rank. With no food, the Aboriginals hunted the cattle and then they were hunted down themselves. Fucking tragic. Monica told us the problems for Aboriginals of this region with the concept of money. They don't rely on misery like we do, so it's of little value. Money was replaced with food tokens for the shop. This had to be adopted because previously money was gambled away. The winner might charter a plane and go on a crazy binge in the nearest town or city until the cash had gone and then come home and revert to sort of a more traditional lifestyle, subsidizing stuff with hunting and gathering bush food. The Sale River, in brackets, Muffy Falls. The Sale River flows down through a deep, crumbling gorge. So narrow I felt I could have pushed my legs against either face and climbed to the top. A huge stone bath and someone had pulled a plug out, leaving a tide line high up on the cliff faces. We motored up the stream until the tide ran shallow, catching a couple of mangrove jacks with a lure made from a sayo cracker packet. There's a break in the gorge where the river opens up in a bush, and to our surprise there's a group of fishermen on the riverbank rolling up their swags. We hadn't seen many people at all out here, like a handful of people in weeks. These guys are on an organized fishing trip, probably paying a small fortune to get shipped up here in the wilderness for a week. But more importantly, like a mirage, they've got an esky full of ice cold beer and they gave us one each. Legends! Man, it was probably like VB or something, but it tasted so good. One bloke shows his tracks where a croc had slid past his swag in the night. He seemed glad that it had happened, with a good story to tell his mates back in Perth. There are heaps of croc slides and tracks on the shoreline, so we walk with trepidation. In a clearing, Dave makes a fire and chucks a mangrove jack straight on the coals. He makes up damper, unleavened bread, which, as I said, we were craving bread. He buries it deep in the hot coals to bake. We eat the fish off paper bark with the bread and drink from a freshwater stream. There's no rubbish, no waste. The insects and animals will see to that and the earth will take back the rest. All that minerals going straight back into the circle of life. Once we've climbed over the saltwater line to freshwater, we relax a little. But then again, salties do sometimes get trapped in the freshwater pools after the wet. We scramble over ledges and boulders, jumping our way along the river basin. Dave's in front, always in front. He was bloody good at running on rocks. I don't know if you've done much rock scrambling, but... I generally look down at my feet a lot, whereas Dave just seemed to have that ability just to look forward and just march on. And he was super efficient. Like when you see someone tightroping, if you look down, it's going pear shape, you've got to look ahead. So we're trying to stay up with Dave. Um, Dave's in front, always in front, 
But today I make up my mind to beat him. I was going upwind, taking the lead, marching away from people and the noise they carry with them. Outrunning the flies that flew up our nostrils and in our mouths. Stumbling across creatures as they shoot for cover. The gorge closes up again, but it was slowly losing the fight with the elements. Huge chunks of stone worked loose by rain and tree roots had fallen into the gorge or hung precariously above our heads. At the end of the gorge we climbed to the top of a waterfall. I look over the edge and instantly my guts start churning. I know I have to jump. Dave swims around beneath the falls checking for submerged rocks. It looked pretty safe, so I jump. But it's not too good a feeling when it the point you thought you'd be hitting the water, you're still in mid-air, gaining speed. I hit hard, the pressure heavy on my eardrums. Then Bry jumped. It was bloody awesome. Richo, could you do it again, mate? I didn't quite get it. Ant had his fisheye lens on his camera and he's trying to capture us in mid-flight with the gorge sucked into view at the edges. By the third jump, our ears are throbbing. Go on, mate, one more time, Richo. I'll send you the pictures, I promise, I promise. If you're out there, Ant, where are my f***ing pictures? <laughs> you bastard. I can't, actually, I can't find Ant. I, I don't even know his surname, so I just can't get hold of him. I'd love to know what he's doing now. He told me he was going to get a bigger cat when I met him, and he said he was going to call it two canoes, like two hulls fixed together. I hope he did that. I know he went to Africa, um, back to Africa. I push out from the cliff face and drop into the water. As I surface, there's an almighty slap sound right behind me. This is going to hurt my leg. Ah, fuck. Yeah, that hurt. <laughs> Muffy surfaces, looking shocked and in pain. All this time we'd been jumping, she'd been watching, talking herself into the day. She'd sat back on the, beyond the slippery edge and just, she must have been going, come on, come on, you fucking, this time, this time, go on, go, this time, this time. She, and then she just exploded before she had a chance to change her mind. She ran full belt across the mossy rocks that led to the edge, slipped over and started somersaulting down the face of this cliff into the water. Her head was inches from the rocks. And um, anyone calling bullshit on that, we've actually got a photograph of it. Dave was posing for another shaving shot with the falls in the background. At the exact moment, Muffy fell. And when Dave developed the pictures, he came across his shaving picture with Muffy streaking through the background. Obviously, the caption there was, close shave. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a dad. What can I say? Um, the surface tension left her with a sore backside and thigh. She was tough. Only her pride was hurting. Muffy fell a couple of times on the journey back, slipping on rocks and almost overbalancing. Some of the ledges we took were high above the water, loose and slippery, especially on the tide line where a skin of mud iced the rocks. I hang back with her like a sheepdog, tired legs and hungry, racing the tide and the sun. High or low, good or bad, on reflection, Muffy would probably be glad what happened. After pain and fear comes relief and joy. It seems travellers can cope with anything but boredom. The following day, Luke would come her way under the guise of pain. She chewed on a fresh oyster from the rocks and almost broke a tooth and spat out a huge natural black pearl. The pearl... <laughs> this was a classic. The pearl dwarfed the one that David proudly wound around his neck. He must have been kicking himself as he was the one who washed, cooked and served up the oysters without spotting this handsome black pearl. It's a bloody beauty. Okay, so I'll just explain black pearls. When they do cultured pearls, they put in a piece of plastic, 
into the shell, like all like open it up carefully and put this little plastic square in and then sensing it as a um for an object the oyster puts the mother of pearl like you see on shells starts putting it around the the foreign object and then slowly a pearl is made so they literally culture these pearls whereas a black pearl is a natural pearl and it's made from something naturally getting into the oyster like it must be grit or something and then it starts building around that because it's not cultured and synthetic it's a natural black pearl the tide is almost on low when we arrive back at the fisherman's camp the fishermen warn us it would be a dangerous trip back at this hour brian i think so too suggesting we should stay here and drink vb until the morning but dave wants to get back to his precious imagica when we reach the dinghy, it's ten foot above the waterline. That morning, we'd left a couple of fishing lines out next to the dinghy, hoping for, to catch a fish for tea, and we caught two poor sods that were dangling high above the water, sunbaked by the midday sun. Rock solid, they were. The cliff is treacherous, but somehow we managed to carry the dinghy down to the waterline and flow downstream towards Imagica. Ant and Muffy hung around a while, dipping into Dave's port. I was playing my guitar. The gorge like amplified the quietest of sounds. Each little note sounding so good and resonating for an age. So much so I could play my next note on top of the last. I don't know how the tune went, but you could literally... It, the resonance was so fine you could rub your fingers together and hear it resonating around the gorge. It's phenomenal. A scar on this face, I feel free but trapped in an eye. Someone let me breathe, let me escape. I don't know how I would have sung that. It would have been like... T -t 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 -t. I need a guitar and a gorge. <laughs> uh, please... Um, can someone pay for me to go back to the Sail River and go to that gorge with a guitar? A scar on his face. I would have been really soulful and tired. So, A scar on his face. I feel free, but trapped in an eye. Somebody let me breathe, let me escape. Da, 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 da. All skippers are bastards, Ant told me. Even though Dave is a good bloke, living 24-7 under his rules and regulations is taking the shine off our experience. As I mentioned earlier. But how lucky were we to be on this yacht and experiencing what we had? Like All thanks to Dave and Gus. Okay, this is called Ant in Tanzania. I just want to mention as well, when um, Ant was telling us his stories, you kind of could see it because he was a gutsy dude. Like when, we, when Muffy got that pearl and everyone's like really careful getting into the dinghies and all that, Ant just like jumped off the shore into his tinny and sort of surfed it across the water. <laughs> like, fuck. If you fell out there, jeez. And uh, in that Sail River, I don't know if I mention it here, but um, oh yeah, I'll tell it later on. But um, yeah, he was a bit of a wild dude. I mean, if someone just buys a catamaran and just starts sailing and learns along the way, he's got to be a wild dude, right? Actually, I might tell another funny story, but it, <laughs> when he was when he was uh, sailing up and down the coast, looking for um, like he was meeting fellow yachty guys along the way, and he'd met this legend yachty guy because he was a real talkative, friendly guy, approachable, and uh, he'd met this sort of big wily uh, sea dog, big beard, and he'd done loads of sailing. 
And he said to Ant, you know, come over on, you know, come over tonight. I'll show you some videos on on the yacht. And he's got this nice big yacht. And uh, Ant's like, yeah, yeah, sweet, sweet. So he paddles over from his little tiny uh, funky turtle. He gets on this yacht, and the guy's like, I want a beer. Yeah, yeah, sweet, sweet. Yeah, we'll watch a few vids. Um, but, you know, and he's, Ant's like a little kid, really, just like, glow, like, sort of, oh, wow, you did that. You sailed there. Oh, my God. You know, he's a super, like, fanboying on this big guy. Anyways, yeah, come in here. We'll, we'll watch the vid. TV's in here. And it just happened that the TV was in the big cabin. So they sat on this bed. And uh, instead of sailing videos, this guy starts put some pornos on <laughs> and puts an arm around. <laughs> and, <laughs> and by this time, Ant had had a few drinks too, so he's like, Fuck. I don't know if I can make it back to my boat, but he's just like, no, no, mate, no, I'm not into that stuff. No, 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 no. Oh, come on. What, what, uh? This guy's like pretty much begging him to... Uh, get cosy and uh, Ant said he was drunk but he had to get in his tinny and sort of get back to <laughs> his funky turtle. Ant in Tanzania. Humour and animation came naturally to Ant which made him a great storyteller and that night in a groove of rock filled with water on the northwest coast of Australia Ant carried us all the way to Africa. He's like again sorry for my accent if it sounds a bit shit but I bullshitted my way into a job with a safari company in Tanzania, taking the tourists out on safari. The other guides knew a lot more than me and gave me shit. Mind you, I was a cheeky little prick back then and I probably deserved it. I took a group of tourists out bush in the landy to camp out under the stars. It was a beautiful night. A little fire going, a blanket of stars and the native animals hopping and the native animals hopping about. A real thrill for the tour group. But then this other tour group shows up. All this land, sodding savannah, and these guys decide to camp right next to us. They, cramp up, they crank up a big stinky generator. They've got these huge spotlights going on, and then boom, 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 boom. This massive ghetto blaster, as big as the Jenny. I'm like, fuck's sake, mate, I've got customers here. I went over. I said, excuse me, fellas, can you keep the noise down? And uh, they were local African guys. I said, come on, brother, relax, have a drink. I said, come on, guys, cut the frigging disco. These tourists have paid big bucks to come out here. The real Africa. This is the real Africa, one of the guys said. <laughs> have a drink. I begged them, please, can you keep the noise down? Okay, no problem, son. Go back to your camp. 20 minutes later and the stereo was turned up higher. So I go back over. Hey, guys, come on, you're making me look a dick here. <laughs> calm down, guy, calm down. I just walked over to the generator, but I couldn't work out how to turn it off, so I picked up a lump of wood and started bashing the fuck out of it. Two of the native African guys lost it and grabbed me and started laying into me. Oh, fuck, I've done it now. I tried to say sorry, but they were fuming. I decided to just lie there. Not much else I could do. I'd fucked up. Let the guys belt me a bit, teach me a lesson, and then I'd be on my way. But they kept belting me. I tried to protect my noggin, but my hands and my arms are killing from all the wax. Then out the corner of my eye, I see the fat chef running at me, shouting for his mates to hold my leg. He was going to friggin' break it. Hold his leg! Hold his leg! I freaked. I don't know where I got the strength from, but I managed to get up, throwing the two blokes off me. I was ropeable. I grabbed a shovel and fucked swinging it wildly. You fucking bastards! Fuck! Okay. Okay, man, calm down. We wouldn't have really hurt you. Just fun only. I went nuts. Come on, you fuckers. I'll kill you all. Come on. I'll get all you one by one. I won't forget you fucking cowards. I point to the fat chef. You are dead. You are dead. When I got back to base a few days later, the workers in the camp were looking at me like I had a turd on my head.
I asked one of the other guides, what's wrong? They tell me, you, you black magic, you told the chef he's going to die, and he did. I can't believe it, but he was dead. These guys thought I'd put some voodoo curse on him, so I said, I know. I tell them not to mess with me, and then it goes for anyone else. I didn't have much trouble with the guides after that, Ant said. <laughs> I don't know how far Ant stretched the truth, because um, there's a couple of his stories that just went a little bit over the, uh, into the movies. Like the hang glider one, where he said he just got that hang glider, and after a few hours, fucking had a crack and jumped off a cliff with it. But later that night, Ant and Muffy prepared to head back to the Funky Turtle. Dave checked the water with a torch. A red pair of eyes drifted in between the Funky Turtle and a Magicka. We tried to convince him to stay for the night, but Ant jumped down into his tinny, checking his balance. The croc wasn't too big, maybe only nine foot. This one's called Howard's Creek. Ant pushes his dinghy off the deck of the funky turtle and jumps in, surfing on the momentum. He stands at the bow, paddling with one oar, a battered straw hat, sarong and a cast net slung over his brown shoulder. He works his way along the edge of the rocks where the waters deepen in the shade. There was movement, ripples in the water up ahead. Ant throws his net skyward and it opens, falling in a wide circle around a school of young mullet. Now we'll catch a barra, he told us. Live bait. Now there's an old saying in England, right? There's nothing worse. I think it's a Yorkshire saying. And folks had a habit of using it completely out of context. There's nothing worse than cold tea. Oh, there's no worse than flat beer. And my old man, a.k.a. Padre, he used to ridicule this saying. <laughs> Because he's a real deep thinker, my dad, like brilliant imagination. And he said, why do people say that? He said, there's loads of stuff worse. He said, what about stepping into a Wellington boot full of molten lead? <laughs> yeah. Um, but there is definitely nothing worse than being a bait fish. The little mullet looked up at me. Stick the hook through the top of his head, Richo. Not too deep, else you'll kill him. If, I'm, if I was on my own, I'd have stuck to the lure. Fuck the barramundi. I mean, the cat tastes that good. Right, Richo, let him go. The little mullet swam off, trailing the fishing wire behind. I thought of the predators below looking up at him. He swam and swam, diving deep, trying to hide trying to outrun the big wire that was stuck through his skull. But when he reached safety, Ant reeled him back in. When he finally resurfaced, the little mullet was exhausted. I took the hook out of his head, figuring he'd run the gauntlet enough. And when I say in his head, it was in the skin above his skull. Fucking barbaric. <laughs> Yeah, such a softy bitch. Toughen up. Have a teaspoon of concrete and toughen up. I took the hook out of his head, figuring he'd run the gauntlet enough. But when I set him free, he just floated in the one spot in a daze. I tried to splash him in to swim into safety, but he hung by the boat. Come on, you little bastards. Come on, give me a barra. Although Ant is rustic in craft and demeanour, he has an expensive collection of fishing tackle. Ant had reverted back to one of his prized lures, which he casts and spins quickly in and out. Snap! A bite! He whips back his rod to embed the hook. The rod doubles as he rushes to reel it in, risking snapping his line but too excited to play it. The fish is within a few feet of the surface, but its speckled colourings made it easy to recognise. A big rock cod. Big. Ugly in my opinion. <laughs> Beautiful, if another rock god's checking it out. 
with droopy golf ball eyes and huge expanding mouths filled with tiny sharp teeth. Rock cod are so slimy. You just can't get a hold of them. They're really good eating though, but they're so difficult to kill. They're just full of nerves. It keeps on flipping them around and shitting the life out of me as I go in with a knife to fill them. Yeah, it was, it's like wrestling with a bar of soap. It was. After we'd tortured a few more bait fish and belted the crap out of a couple more rock cod with a winch handle, we set sail. Still early. Dave wanted to sail with the offshore breeze before the sun heats up the land. It wasn't much fun being stuck in the doldrums on light winds, doing one knot when it was 36 degrees under the dodge, which is the shade over the cockpit that Josie was helping with. Thanks, Jos. Actually, I'll tell you a funny story as well. When I did that podcast about Josie, I was listening back to my current podcast that I'm trying to, like the draft of my latest episode, trying to fix it up. And after that finished, I was driving so I couldn't stop it. And it just randomly played Deep Forest straight after it. No podcast, just Deep Forest. It's like these songs. <laughs> Josie, are you up there? Are you doing this? Dave is an admirable purist, sailing as much as possible. Like he was, he was gold. Like I've been with other yachts and they crank the engine at any moment. Like, oh fuck, slightly a bit difficult tacking and having to go winds in wrong direction. Crack, put engine on, blah blah blah. But Dave used the engine as a complete last resort and he loved the idea of navigating the globe on its own energy. The winds were still stronger offshore, holding us up and throwing spray off the big waves that jack up in the shallows. I deserted the Magica for the day and sailed with Ant and Muffy. I like the way Ant sails. More random and carefree. <laughs> More dangerous too, but... <laughs> we climb and duck amongst the rigging. Ass is only a few feet above the water. We're getting wet. Music sounds out from one of the hulls. Milo boils on a tranger stove in the other. He had his books, binoculars, herbs, his guitar, and one of the best windows in the world. Dave knew his shit, but Ant really knew how to have a good time. He steers the turtle in between the mainland and a small island through a really narrow gap trailing the lure over the reef. The cat it only has a two-foot draft, which meant we could sail right up into the shallows. We're sailing so close to the land, we spook the feral cows that are grazing along the beach. We're bound to catch something here, Richard. Ant's optimism rarely faded. Climb out the back with the rod. When we go over the reef, slap out that uh, lure. The reef becomes clearer beneath us, crystal clear. I can make out the corals and small fish. I felt sure we were going to run, a, run aground. Bang! Suddenly a big fish is on the line and fighting. I reel hard, scraping the skin off my knuckles. The rod doubles over. Easy, Richard, play her a bit, let her out. Tear her out, let it out, let it out. Okay, not too fast. It took a while before a silver and yellow shape neared, then broke the surface. Ant reached out with a gaff and a huge flapping trevelli suffered on the netting. They're beautiful fish. Get her back in, mate. It's a frenzy. It's a feeding frenzy. Get her back in. Get her back in. Ant slowly losing his laid-back demeanour. When I look into the water, I can see a school of Trevelli chasing the catamaran. As soon as the lure hits the water, another fish is on the line and going out fast. Put the drag back on, Rich. Put the drag back on. I have done. I'd put it back on, but... The drag had worked loose and needed tightening, tightening after the first fish. Put it on! Put it on! And the line's just winding out and out. We're going to run out of line. Richard, give me the fucking rod! Give me the fucking rod! <laughs> totally lost it by now. He jumps in the back and grabs the rod. He's got the rod shaft in the tips of his fingers just as the line runs out. 
Before he secures his grip, the line reaches its, its end and ping. One fishing rod and a $500 reel into the Indian Ocean and lost forever. <laughs> he actually, he loved it that much. He went back with a, he dropped a sinker and cruised up and down the bay for hours trying to, uh, in the hope that he'd snag this line. But poor Trevelli had taken off attached to this bloody rod. Howard's Creek. We sail in convoy, guided by Brian up at the bow and the depth sounder snaking around sandbars and rocks until mangroves hem us in. We're looking for a guy who lives around here, up this estuary, called Howard. Dave has a beer map with a map drawn on the back. Left at stilted mangroves after two nautical miles, via right past oyster rocks and fallen tree, more at least 100 metres down from small waterfall on left to avoid drying out on low tide. P.S. I live behind the waterfall. A few paddles in the dinghy and we make it to the edge of the small waterfall, behind the falls of the deep pool of trapped tidal water. So the tide's running out. We skirt around the pool, following a vague path that leads through the scrub. At the end of this path, there were the beginnings or the end endings of a house. It was hard to tell whether it was half built or half falling down. Corrugated sheets and timber are strewn around a small clearing. An expensive looking irrigation system stands idle. The siphonage had broken its floor. Ant tries to get it working again, joking that Howard must have been growing a bit of the old herbal medicine. Disappointingly, Howard isn't home. It's pretty late in the afternoon when we return to the pool next to the waterfall, which with the tide running out quickly is forming a natural fish trap. This pool's alive. There's rock cord, sea perch, mangrove jacks, even a shark fin circling in this little pool. It's such easy fishing. So we're chucking in and pulling out fish, all this protein. The water's draining from the estuary too, and we needed water to float the dinghy. And in the fading light, the mosquitoes crank up their mopeds, and sandflies piss on our skin, making the urge to scratch overwhelming. Just need a drink. The locals around Darwin had a and like a, a home home remedy for sandflies. It was pretty much dettol and baby oil. Put it on your skin. The oil stops them contacting with your skin and causing the itch. And the dettol puts them off getting there in the first place. Some of the alternative Australian insect repellents contain so much DEET they can cause more harm than the insects. But we have neither. So Brian and me scoop up thick hands full of tidal mud and cover ourselves in the stuff, hoping it might stop the itching as we carry on fishing. By now the sandflies were swarming us in the thousands. And Gus and Muffy had gone ahead earlier and taken the dinghies further downriver, following the outgoing tide. And now they're screaming for us to get back. Come on, the water's running out. Hurry up. We're on mud. Hurry up. There was hardly any water left in the estuary. The way we'd originally came in in the dinghy was now a razor-sharp, slippery path of exposed oyster shells. Even crawling down on all fours, the cuts of the shells was excruciating. Come on, come on, get your fucking asses back! But the distance between the bank and the dinghy is too far. We'd get sucked down into the mud or picked off by a crook. This isn't the time to dally. Dave takes a lead. He was good at shit like this. He climbs up the cliff that's, that towers over the uh, fish pool and forces a path up and over. Grabbing onto the vegetation, we make our way down to a ledge that overhangs the estuary. We can see Gus in the dinghy some 20-odd feet below. Dave shouts for Gus to untie the anchor rope and throw it 
throw it up to him. She's got a good aim. Dave catches it. Dave catches a rope and loops it around a tree. Dave slides down the anchor rope into the dinghy, followed by Ant. Everyone's covered in mud. Bry tries to slow himself down, but the rope's thick with mud by now from Ant and Dave. Without the friction, he whizzes to the bottom, slicing open his feet on oysters. Blood everywhere. When I see him dancing out the pain, I wrap the rope tight around my hands and inch my way down. Dave's freaking out. Come on, Rich, fucking hell, move it! I'm so muddy, I slip down into the dinghy and keep sliding under the seats like a bar of soap. Gussie's rowing as soon as my legs are inside. The estuary is almost dry, and Ant's cat was anchored in some of the only water deep enough to row in. Either side is mud, so we have no other choice but to drag ourselves underneath the funky turtle. It's almost dark by this point, red eyes glistening on the muddy banks. I just lie there under the seat in the mud and sweat, sliding around, mosquitoes still biting skin that itches from sandflies and the microorganisms in the mud. When a magica comes into view, she's laid on her side, exposing barnacles and antifoul on the hull. Woo! I thought that might happen, Dave laughs. Fucking yacht's fully laid over. Our sanctuary. The ladder at the back of a magica is at 45 degrees, and difficult to climb, especially covered in mud. The cockpit's steep. I slip down across the deck and bang myself up on the helm. Rich, watch the mud! Get a bucket! Don't get any mud on the boat! I look at Dave questioningly. We're all caked in the stuff. He's got to be joking. He isn't. We slip around the deck trying to rope out water from a couple of muddy pools. But it was a good call by Dave. The water took the sting out of the bites and cooled everybody down. Bry put the kettle on which wasn't easy, since the cooker was swinging on its, hinge, on its hinges way above his head. I've got a photograph of this too. It looks weird. It's like you're caught in a G-force. Alone. The yacht, the mud, the slant, it's all out of our control. The world has stopped for a magica, caught in a time warp. All we can do is wait in suspended animation until the tide comes up. I liked Dave more when he fucked up. He became one of us. A normal bloke, capable of mistakes. And for that small space in time, we were almost on equal terms. No offence, Dave. <laughs> I actually met Dave probably a year after that, or more, a couple of years, oh, three years after that. And we went for a surf in Byron Bay. That was cool. He's, he'd actually sold his yacht and he was living up in Queensland, but I can't find the dude because um, he used to have a, a Magica Dave Hotmail account, but his last name's Smith, so it's a bugger trying to find him. This is called Dunny Hill. Dunny Hill. We haven't seen anybody for days, which was normal. But broom and civilization is getting closer. You can almost smell it on the wind. There's a weird thing too if you ever go sailing. Um, not so much when you're really close to the coast, but if you sail out to sea for days, when you come near land, all the vegetation's really strong in your nostrils. Like it's just such a vivid um, sense. It's like you've resensitized yourself to not smelling vegetation just smelling ocean water and then all of a sudden this sweet vegetation smells blow off the land all the waddles and stuff and you just get a lungful it's beautiful we come across another shack the owners have built their own jetty to make getting ashore easier it's a pretty full-on it's low tide, the rusty rickety jetty looms 30 feet above us. It looks a safer option to climb the hillside. We manage to get quite close to a rocky outcrop crop that's free of mud. A good starting point to what looks to be the direction of the house. 
It's a classic setting for a 4X commercial. Steep, slippery banks leading into croc and shark-infested waters. We clamber up over loose rocks and vegetation until the climb levels into a walk along a man-made track. The people who lived here had built a huge steel tank, maybe 30 feet in diameter. Inside there's a table and chairs half submerged in the water and speakers on the walls. There's no one here but imagine them sat around eating and drinking and wallowing on the red hot days. The chairs were black with damp and algae was forming in the water. Regardless, we all dive in, enjoying the originality of the place. Further up the track, the house, a few, a few small timber huts linked together with shade cloth is deserted. Exotic fruits surround the place, passion fruit, papaya and all the manner of veggies. The modern and traditional world is mixed up like paints in a palette. Satellite TV in the jungle, monks with walkmans, villagers of Laos using warheads to crush their beetle nut, Filipino farmers cooking over fires on the footpaths of the cities, and here on the, on the edge of the Kimberley, 400 feet above the water, there's a fucking toilet. No shit. Well, probably was shit. A toilet, no walls, just this bright white Thomas Crapper perch where the owners must sit like kings surveying the land. Ridiculous. And there was like a tree and Danny Roll just blowing in the wind, hanging on a bit of wire. I put a note here, I'll say it, but I might not put it in. This is the last of the Australian wilderness, falling under the feet of the West. The Europeans found an amazing culture. Tens of thousands of years of knowledge. There are fruits from the bush that have more vitamin C in one fruit than ten of our oranges, but we rip it out of the ground and plant oranges. The more scars of Western progress I see, I wish we would all fuck off back home and leave this race that had lived in harmony with the land for thousands of years. Then selflessly, I want to belong. I love this place. Independence Day, Reaching Broom. It's one of those trippy glitches in time when you drift out of your conscious mind and when you drift back, you have to remind yourself who and where you are. I'm stood up in the dinghy, gently rocking on the swell, a total peace with the ocean and myself. The same ocean that had threatened to smash us all into tiny pieces against the rocks was now a friend. A silky surface mirrored a falling sun. A silky surface mirrored a falling sun. I stood there a long while in my own space. It was getting dark and probably dangerous. But the world was too fascinating a place tonight to let mortality worry me. On the shore, shadows of my friends, cast from the flames of a fire, danced high up the cliff faces and their voices carried across the ocean toward me. Early next morning we passed Cape Levique. The ocean surface was white with activity. Baitfish had been rounded up by a school of frenzied tuna and gulls mobbed the surface. We couldn't drop the lure though. Dave said it'd be a waste. We still had a barracuda that we caught a few days earlier. He was a big old granddad barracuda. Mean looking, with a set of teeth that wouldn't look out of place in a dog. But the poor old guy was tired and put up little fight. The meat wasn't good either. It was grey meat. <laughs> but good on Dave, like, we didn't just throw it overboard. We, we just ate what we had. Instead of just loading, you know, taking too much. We wouldn't make broom today. It was over a hundred miles away. On the radio, a mayday sounded. A bloke had thrown himself overboard from a fishing trawler he was working on. An hour later, a report came, confirmed they had found him and dragged him back on board. I wondered if they gaffed him out of habit. Do you know what gaffing is? When you put the hook out and gaff under the fish's gills. At seven the next morning, we packed and loaded up in the dinghy. 
Dave judges the waves and surfed up onto the sands of Cable Beach. We shook hands. Everyone was happy. Dave motored back to his boat. I reckon he danced around the boat naked, enjoying his uh, newfound freedom again. Brian and I followed the red dust track that led off Cable Beach toward the town. It was going to be a long walk with the pannier bags cutting into our hands. We still didn't have backpacks. But it was the start of another chapter, another journey, which seemed to be our only real want out of life. Bryce stuck out his thumb and Larry, seven kids, pulled up in his ute and told us to jump in. Thanks for listening to another episode. If you like these stories, share it with someone else. Tell them a story. 